Well, it's been over a week now since we've got back from that canoe trip that we talked about last week. And if you haven't heard by now, I'm sure you will hear very soon about a story about me and a canoe. And I'm sure that story is going to haunt me for the rest of my life. And so I thought I'd get out in front of it first, especially since Pastor Chad's back in the pulpit next week. You never know what he's going to say. So I get a chance to give my side of the story today. So let me tell you about it. The plan was to go on the Petawaba River to do a whitewater trip. And I won't bore you with all the details, but we got to the first rapids, which were supposed to be the easiest rapids of the day. And three of us got into a boat, and we attempted to go down the rapids. And before you know it, we hit a few big waves, water's coming in the boat, we turned sideways, and the boat was flipped over. There was three of us, all three of us in the water, and very quickly, we had to pick the canoe up because our middle passenger was stuck underneath it, and as soon as we picked it up, she floated down the river, and we, well, thankfully, she got to the bottom. Now, after that is when the real trouble started. You see, my partner, who was left with me with the boat, we tried to get the boat back upright, and in the process, the boat actually was pushed away by the current and smashed against the rock, wrapped right around. I, I called the canoe was turned inside out. And very quickly, we realized our trip was not going to be what we thought it was. After we realized that, we still had to take the canoe, we held on to it, tried to fight the current as we walked and fell and slipped along the slippery rocks that were underneath us. We tried our best to pull the canoe, I mean the scrap metal. We tried our best to, to get it down the rest of the rapids. It was not an easy journey. And no matter what we seemed to do, we couldn't get it to go the way we wanted. I won't share with you all the rest of the things on the trip, but I was very thankful that Pastor Chad was the one who brought the boat back, and I didn't have to hear the strong words that the outfitter had for us when we tried to return their canoe. It's one of the benefits of being an associate pastor and not the lead pastor. So once we were dry, my partner, and notice how I keep saying partner because I'm not going to throw him under the bus either, so leave it a little bit. He can be embarrassed another time. We were talking about it, and, and he said something to me that stuck with me. He said, even though I prepared and I was studying and I watched videos, and he technically knew what to do, we found ourselves in the midst of that rapid doing everything we shouldn't have done. We were trying to hold on to the canoe instead of letting the current just take it. We are trying to use our strength instead of using the strength of the current. We knew what to do, at least in theory we thought we knew what to do, and yet we didn't do it. And often our prayers fall into that same category, don't they? We get in that same trap. We want to pray. We know it's a good thing. We've seen others do it. We've read about how to have a healthy prayer life, and yet when it comes down to it, we find ourselves doing the same things that we shouldn't be doing. Or maybe we don't even realize it like I did when we were stuck in the rapids. We just get into our natural instincts. We come to God with perhaps a list of Christmas wishes. Maybe we doze off in the middle of prayer. Maybe we really want to win that hockey game or do well on an exam. Really, we start praying for our own will instead of the will of the Father. And often we get in such bad, hair, such bad prayer habits that we forget who or what or why we are even praying to and for. Other times we neglect to pray at all, thinking we can just do it on our own. 
So why is it that we forget how to pray and who we should pray to and what we should pray for? Why is it that we keep falling back into that default mode? Why do we do things that we shouldn't be doing? Like panicking in the midst of the rapids. Thankfully, God has provided his word. He's provided examples of other people who have prayed godly prayers. And who better to learn from than the Apostle Paul? So why don't you go ahead and turn to Ephesians 3, verse 14, is our text for this morning. It's a popular portion of Scripture. You've probably heard it read many times. Maybe even you have it memorized. But we often forget when we read this Scripture that Paul is praying. And it's my hope this morning as we dig into this prayer that we use it as an example to help us shape how we actually pray ourselves. So let's read it together. Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Doesn't that seem like an unusual prayer? Paul's praying for the Ephesians, but he's not praying about their circumstances. Not that there's anything wrong with praying about circumstances, but he doesn't do that here. Paul's teaching us there's something bigger than what's going on around us. Most of us think if our lives were to change, if our circumstances were to change, then we would change. We often pray that God would change our situation that we might do better. Now, granted, this is just one of Paul's prayers, so we can't use it as an overall example of all prayers. We obviously don't have time to go through every one of his prayers either. And in studying for this, I was reading this book called Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. It's very helpful, goes over a ton of Paul's prayers, and gives great practical applications in our own prayer lives. Now, Pastor Chad and I both have a copy of this book, so if you'd like to borrow one, you can ask him. I'm just kidding, you could borrow mine as well. Even though this text is just one example of prayer, it still provides us with an example of an effective and godly prayer. So the first thing we want to notice about what Paul prays is that he prays with humility and confidence. He's teaching us to pray with humility and confidence. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. That's how he starts his prayer. Now Paul was praying for a reason. Last week he almost got to the reason, if you remember, he went on a bit of a rabbit trail, but he gets back to it here. The reason that Paul is drawn to prayer is that everything he has said before, in everything before chapter 3, namely the truth of God's word, that mystery we talked about, has moved him. Paul has been moved deeply by the truth that he stated in Ephesians 2, verse 19. If you want, you can flip there for a second, Ephesians 2, 19. 
He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. Holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the kind of thing that is urging Paul to pray. The basis of his prayer is the knowledge of God's purpose. And he's going to pray that God's plan and his purpose come to fruition. But also notice his posture. He's kneeling. Now that may seem normal to you, especially if in your prayer life you kneel while you pray. But in Paul's day, kneeling was not the norm. It was rather standing instead. Kneeling was reserved for the moments of greatest emotion. It's not just a cold intellectual prayer. It has emotion to it. There's another example of Paul praying when he's on his knees. It's in Acts 20 when he comes to the elders of the church in Ephesus and they know that they are never going to see him again. And they pray together on their knees. There's emotion there. Deep, deep emotion. And emotion brings us to action. When we are emotional about God and his purposes, it draws us to pray and to worship, like the psalmist in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why? Verse 3 says, For, or because, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. And in verse 6, the psalmist writes this, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. See, the understanding of God's being, of God's purpose, of God's word, draws a response out of those who grasp it. Both Paul and the psalmist who wrote this are humbled by the work of God and they bow on their knees in reverence. So they're reverent, they're, they're humble, but they're also confident. He directs his prayer to the Father on behalf of those who have become members of the family of Christ. We talked about that last week. We are all united in the family of God. We come to God as sons and daughters, and Paul does that here. He's praying with confidence, as boldness, like a child who speaks to their father. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 16, verse 26 to 27. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. See, Paul is humble, he comes on his knees, but he's also confident, knowing that he is a child of God and that God is going to succeed in his purposes. You know, we often ask when we pray, what's the point? Are my prayers going to get answered? Does praying really change God's mind? Well, the answer is no. We can't change God's mind with our prayers, but yet Paul still prays with confidence because he knows that God is a good father and Paul is his child. He's going to God for a reason, because he has confidence that God has already determined to do the things that Paul is actually going to ask for. So when we pray for ourselves or for other believers, we can have confidence because we know that God is going to work in us. He's promised to do that. 
God is going to make you more like Jesus. We don't pray if it's, our, if it's God's will to make us more like Jesus. We know it's his will to make us more like Jesus. And we pray that God will accomplish it. A great verse, which I almost forgot to put in the slides today, but Bailey was able to get it in their last minute, comes from Romans 8, 30 to 31. And those whom he predestined, he has also called. And those whom he called, he is also justified. And those whom he has justified, he is also glorified. What then shall we say? What, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? So if Paul can come to the Father in such humble confidence, what does he teach us to pray once we get there? He teaches us really two things from this passage. Notice firstly, pray that you may be strengthened through the Spirit. In verse, three, or verse 16 to 17. Let me read it for you. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does Paul pray for? He prays for power, for power from the Holy Spirit, and power from the Holy Spirit in his inner being, the purpose being that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. He doesn't pray that we'll have power to improve our social standing. He doesn't pray that we'll have power to get what we want, to change our circumstances. The power that Paul prays for is that our inner being is to become a place where Christ makes his home. You know, Paul could have used two different words here for dwelling, for that indwelling of Christ. Right next door to us is a hotel. When you dwell in a hotel, you're a guest. You are given limited access to one room and maybe a common area, maybe the pool. But it's not like you're going to go in and remodel everything and rip some walls out and repaint. Most of the time, you don't even unpack your suitcase and use the drawers they provide. See, that's not what Paul's talking about when we're to have Christ dwell in us. No, the inner being means the place for your heart, the place where you make your decisions, the place that rules your life. It's a permanent dwelling, one where Christ really, really, really settles in and he lives. That's when true transformation happens. You're probably asking, well, doesn't Christ already dwell in all the believers? And doesn't the Spirit already dwell in those who believe in Christ? So why is Paul praying for something that has already happened? Well, you're right that being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and Christ are actually something that all believers already have. They're parallel statements of the same experience. But what Paul means here is more. He's speaking not just of Christ being in your heart, but Christ ruling your heart. It's a prayer that would have Jesus have fuller possession of everything in your life, every corner of your lives, instead of giving him limited access like a hotel guest. In this book, D.A. Carson actually uses this image of a couple buying a home. He says, imagine a young couple, a young couple scrimps up enough money to put down payment on a home. Now, you've really got to imagine that because the house prices are way up there right now. But imagine we can get enough money to buy a house. They, have, they buy it, but it's a fixer-upper. They look at it, and it needs a lot of work. The wallpaper needs to be come off. The carpet needs to be removed. The basement's just full of junk from the last people who live there. The kitchen's a mess. There's this weird smell that they can't figure out where it's coming from. And, of course, the bathtub and the toilet are mint green. So, the couple buys the home, they gut it, they renovate it. 
And over the years, they continue to tackle the repairs as they arise. They take care of it. They remodel the kitchen. They fix the leaks. They buy a new furnace and air conditioner. You get the idea. And after living there for 25 or more years, the husband turns to his wife and says, I really like it here. This is home. It feels like this fits us. And Carson says, that's exactly what Paul is praying for here. He prays for the Spirit to give us strength that Christ would take residence, have full access. And when Christ has full access in our lives, he finds equivalent things to, you know, that ugly wallpaper or that bad smell, those green bathtubs in our inner beings. He moves in and he cleans. He repairs. He expands. And in time, our inner beings become places that actually reflect who lives there is Jesus. And if Christ lives there at the very center of our beings, that is going to transform us. Real transformation. We'll never be the same. Our inner beings become the dwelling place of Christ, and they show his character. So often we want that life change, don't we? We pray for it. I know I have. God, help me to be a better person. God, help me to be kinder. God, would you just help me to be more successful in ministry even? Help me to know what I'm supposed to say. We often focus on that outer self rather than the inner self first. Instead of asking for strength to allow Christ to change our inner being. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is, pre- is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our inner self is being renewed by Christ day by day. We may be humans. We may be sinful. Our bodies may be frail, but as one commentator put it, we are frail containers pulsating with divine power through the Spirit. Do you get it? It doesn't matter how old or young you are, whether you're in elementary school or high school or you're retired. If you are a believer, this is a prayer that you can pray, that God may dwell more richly in your hearts, that our inner being may be strengthened and allow Christ to continue to change it. In Colossians, Paul addresses the believers, showing them what an inner change looks like. In Colossians 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness and hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Isn't that what we pray for? We want to be like that. But that is the result of being filled with Christ. So Paul is praying for the power to do that, to be holy, the power to think properly, the power to act and talk in ways that are pleasing to God, power and strength to stay moral. 
to be discerning, to be obedient, trusting in God as we grow, as we grow in conformity to Christ, really. So we're left asking this question, though, what do I have to do to receive these? What do I have to do? Name it. I'll do it. And Paul answers very simply that Christ would dwell in his people through faith. Not through strength, not through willingness, not through trying harder, not being a good person, but through faith and trusting in what he provides. Now, it may sound counterintuitive, but we have to recognize unless we are utterly helpless, we can't be strengthened by the Spirit. We have to realize that we are nothing without God. We have to let Christ reign in our lives. John 15, 5 reminds us of this. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We forget that so often. So that's the first thing Paul prays for. Not just that we believe certain things, but this prayer is more about inviting the Spirit to give us power that we might be able to be transformed inwardly as Christ comes and lives in our, in our body, in our spirits. Secondly, pray that you may understand the dimensions of Christ's love. Verse 17, the second half is 17. That you being grounded, being rooted and grounded, sorry, in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, Paul's praying for something kind of strange here, isn't he? Isn't that already true? That believers grasp the love of Christ? It has to be right on some level, doesn't it? Or else we wouldn't be Christians. And that's why Paul says, you are already rooted and grounded in love. But there's a level which we don't really get it, isn't there? There's some things that we just don't understand about Christ's love, at least not yet. A lot of us have this picture of God who's disappointed with us, perhaps judging us every time we fall short. We try to obey God a lot, usually out of our own motivations and duty. But instead, we should be responsive to Christ's love for us. Now, I read this story somewhere months or a year ago, I can't remember, and unfortunately, I can't find the actual copy of it, so you're going to have to just have my version instead of the better one. But it went something like this, and I think I can get the point across. There was a mother in a house, and she called her son into the kitchen. It's time to give your grandfather his lunch, the mom said. The boy begrudgingly enters the room, sits down at the kitchen table, and he starts complaining. Why do I always have to bring him his lunch, mom? You see, the boy's grandfather lived with them and often kept to himself in his room. And the boy continued going on like this. I don't like going in there. He doesn't talk to me, and when he does, it sounds really funny. It's weird. It's kind of scary. And I always have to help him do things. He can't do anything on his own. Mom, don't make me go in there. I don't like going in there with him. And the mother sat down beside her son at the kitchen table, and she told him a story. See, when this boy was just a baby, the grandfather was over visiting at their house. And during the night, there was a fire in their house. And in the midst of the fear and the stress, the mother and the grandfather and the father were all outside, and they realized that they didn't bring the baby. The mom had thought that 
dad had the baby, and the dad had thought the mom had the baby. And without second thought, the grandfather ran back into the burning building to save his grandson. He found the boy, wrapped him up in his shirt, and brought him outside safe and sound. But in the process, through all that smoke inhalation and the burns, his grandfather was badly scarred for life. He had trouble speaking with mobility, and he had scars. And when the boy heard this story, he quickly picked up his grandfather's lunch, and he walked into his grandfather's room, and he never complained again. And not only that, he wanted to spend more time with his grandfather from then on. Now, I know I didn't do that story as much justice as the author did, but you guys get the point. The boy knew that the grandfather loved him before that story, but he hadn't grasped how much he loved him. And once he knew it, once he understood it, he changed. And this is Paul's prayer for us, that we will not just know about Christ's love, that we really grasp it, grasp it to the fullest dimension possible. Now, you probably know many of the essential truths of the gospel. The Ephesians knew them, they're believers. But Paul repeats them so that they start sinking in. He knew that unless those truths sink in into our inner beings through the Spirit, there would be no real life change. Several years ago, I was at a worship conference in Nashville, and the band played an old hymn, and the, the, the hymn was, There is a fountain filled with blood. Many of you know it. And I was singing this old hymn with thousands of other believers. And I came to verse 3. And I had sang this verse before, and I never really thought about it. But verse 3 said this, To all the ransomed ones of God, be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. I'd heard that so many times. But it was there in the middle of that conference, singing that song, that I truly first grasped that. I'd heard countless times before that I'd be saved to sin no more. But I didn't understand it. And as I sang that, as tears rolled down my face, it became real. That's the kind of grasping that Paul's trying to get at here over what Christ has done. Those words that we sang on the screen, we sing them every Sunday, but do we grasp them? Now, how can you measure love? Well, you have to resort to a metaphor, don't you? And Paul uses the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And my sister-in-law was asking when I was preaching on this Sunday, and I told her that verse, and she said, what does that even mean? So I explained it to her like this. Well, you know when a kid says, I love you this much? They reach out as far as they can, and that's how much they love you? You know they love you more than that. And when we say we love you to the moon and back, we know that you love, we, we love our family members more than that. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying that you would be stretched, your minds would be stretched to understand how much God loves you. Infinitely. He stretches the, our capacity to think to the limits of understanding, even past them. And Paul writes to his church in Romans about this love. In Romans 8, 35, verse 39. Caroline read it already this morning, but it's a great passage. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or a sword? And jump to 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing can stop the love of Christ. Those four dimensions that Paul talks about are describing an infinite, incomprehensible love. Christ's love is incomprehensible. And then what does Paul pray for right after? Paul prays that you'd be able to comprehend it, to comprehend the incomprehensible. It's never possible. And yet, it's always possible to learn more. So have we seriously devoted time to thinking and trying to understand Christ's love? But more than that, have have we prayed for a deeper understanding of Christ's love? We can know the facts. We can know that we're sinful. We can know that God loved us enough to send us His Son to die on the cross for our sins. We can know that through that penalty, we have been awarded eternal life. We know it, but do you grasp it? It's not merely an intellectual exercise. Someone once said, For those who have not experienced this love, no words will suffice. And for those who have experienced it, no words will quite do. Now, please don't get me wrong on this point. It can be very dangerous if our faith becomes merely experiential. We do, after all, need to be worshipers in truth and spirit. We still need to know the Word. We need to study it. We need to sit under its authority to discuss it with other believers, to learn from it. But a deep comprehension and grasp of Christ's love will not come through a theological education. From years of attending church, We need the Spirit to take our knowledge and to make it real to us. Next, Paul tells us the result of praying for this deeper comprehension of Christ's love. Verse 19, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Essentially, that means that to become spiritually mature, that we will become all God wants us to be. You know, Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1 verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Probably sitting there thinking, whoa, 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 hold on. First of all, Paul prays for this, that we would know the unknowable love of Christ, the love that surpasses knowledge. And then he goes on to say, which basically means... Be holy as God is holy? Isn't that too much to ask for in a prayer? There's a ton of confidence there, but what happened to the humility that Paul had? How can we pray to be holy as God is holy? Why can we pray this way? And that's our final point for this morning. We pray this way because God is able and He is worthy. Let me read this for you. We've heard it so many times. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul has just told his readers what he prays for them. And it seems overwhelming. He reassures them that it's not too much to ask. Because God's capacity for giving far exceeds anything that people would ask for or even imagine. And why? Because we pray to a God whose riches are inexhaustible. And it's not by our own power that we're asking for these things. We need God's power through His Spirit to do them. 
to be who God wants us to be. If God wants us to be that way, he will strengthen us to do it. But notice here, the power in which God works is the power he has put in us. So how will God do abundantly more? Well, through you, and through you, and through you, and through all believers, and through me. Through the power he's put in us through his spirit. I know that's not exactly how I would do it. I wouldn't choose me to do God's work, and you might not choose you to do God's work. But God does not fit the limitations of our expectations or our goals. Prophet Isaiah, in chapter 55, verse 8 to 9, writes, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, God works in mysterious ways. One of them is he works through us. And we can come to him as children, boldly asking for his power to work in us. We know he is a good father. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Another reminder is from 1 John 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Paul's prayer is for God to give power from his wealth of glory. And Paul ends in worship, in a doxology that is about God. The, the one who has that power to give, the one to do more than we can even imagine. And the only thing left for Paul to do is to worship and give God glory. In the middle of this letter, Paul breaks into a worshipful doxology because it's the only thing left for him to do. John Stott says, the power comes from him and the glory goes to him. We can't forget that everything that Christ has done in us and through us is to bring glory to the Father. Philippians 1 verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the praise and the glory of God. So let me conclude by saying this. Paul prays confidently for the strength of the Holy Spirit, that Christ may be welcomed into our inner beings, that he would renovate our house, so to speak. He comes to clean out the junk and the clutter that our inner beings might be a reflection that show Jesus Christ. And Paul also prays for the Spirit to work in us that we might be able to comprehend the incomprehensible dimensions of Christ's love that we would be filled with the fullness of God, to be all that God wants us to be, to be holy as He is holy. Pretty big request. But God is able. So let me ask you, have you prayed like that? Have you dared to pray that God would strengthen you to be all that He wants you to be? Have you prayed for strength to allow Christ access to everything in your life? Have you prayed that you might be able to understand his love better? It's those sort of prayers that are life-changing and life-giving. It's those sort of prayers that don't put God in a box and keep us focused on our own circumstances, trying to be a better person on our own. We've all tried it. We know it doesn't work. See, the rapids of life keep us knocked down. 
We try to do it in our own strength, and the current just keeps taking us. We need the strength of the Spirit. So I challenge you this week, first of all, to pray. But secondly, as you pray, pray these things. Be bold in asking to be filled with the strength of the Spirit. Make a reminder on your phone. Keep a bookmark in your Bible here and pray through this prayer daily for the next week. Read it over. Pray it for yourself and for others. Imagine what God could do through you if you were all that he wanted you to be. Imagine it. And then remember, he could do more than what you imagine. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this example of prayer through your Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank you for the work of your Spirit in each one of us who believes in you, Father. Lord, and we do pray for that strength of the Holy Spirit, that you would indwell us more and more as we become more like Christ. Father, would you remind us that we can't do anything aside from you? And would you help us to put our faith in you as we come to you and we ask these things boldly, that you are able to do far more than we can think or imagine, Father. Give us the faith to trust you in that. In your Son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.